was nuts. Friends, family, you know, not in a condescending or mean way, but in just not understanding it, not getting it, worried for me, very fear-based. But, you know, I had gotten to a point where I was so deeply unhappy that I knew in my bones that the worst that could happen is I would have a really interesting experience and then I'd go back to some horrible corporate job. So for me, it was like, it just, I was, I I did, I kind of had a revelation. I was walking on the streets of New York, New York, and I was like, I'm 27, I'm single, I have a great education. What is the worst that can happen to me? Hi, everybody. Super excited to share my conversation with Lauren Lee. She's 32 years old and is a certified holistic chef and food expert based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Lauren went to the University of Virginia for college and then moved to New York City, where she lived for four years. In New York City, she had good paying jobs in the law and financial industries, but they left her feeling unfulfilled. Not only was Lauren Lee unhappy with her job, but she also was struggling with her personal life as well. She was not leading a healthy lifestyle, which as a result caused anxiety and depression issues. Laura Lee quickly became tired of this lifestyle and began to focus on ways to improve her health. One major change she made was learning to eat healthy. Laura Lee became so passionate about food and nutrition that in 2013, she took a leap of faith, quit her corporate job, and applied to the National Gourmet Institute of New York City, which was a year-long cooking school where she became a certified chef. After graduating from the school in 2013, She moved back to Nashville and launched LL Balance, which is a website where she is able to share all of her amazing recipes. It wasn't all easy though. She started from the very bottom and had to slowly build a following. She said yes to any opportunity that came her way, such as teaching a cooking class, lecturing classes at school, being a food consultant for restaurants, and creating meal plans for clients. Slowly but surely, she began to obtain tremendous credibility. Today, five years later, she has built an incredible following and business. She launched her very first cookbook called LL Balance in 2017, which includes over 120 delicious and nutritious, easy-to-make recipes. And she's a second cookbook on the way. I can't wait for you all to listen to Laura Lee's inspirational journey. Her positive energy is contagious. So welcome, Laura Lee, to High Five Success Stories. Super excited to have you on my podcast, and you're my very first chef slash nutritionist, so very excited about that. And before we started, I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Susie Welsh-Divine. Susie was kind enough to connect me with Laura Lee. Um, Susie was also featured on the podcast a couple months ago, and if you haven't listened to her interview yet, definitely check it out. She's a company called Binto that she founded. So basically each month they will deliver to your door a box of safe and effective vitamins, probiotics, and supplements that will best match your body's needs. It's so convenient and much more cost effective than going to the local CVS trying to figure out what vitamins and probiotics will best suit you. So I'm subscribed to it and I take my you know vitamins every day. And Larley, I saw in your stories that you take it too, correct? Yes, I do. Oh my gosh, I love it. And it's it's helped me balance my hormones so much. Oh, good. Okay, so would love to start to dive uh, into your story. Can um, you start out by providing us with some background information on where you grew up and went to school? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I actually grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and then my family moved to Nashville for uh, when I was entering middle school because my mom grew up here and she missed home. So then I became a Southern, kind of a Southern girl overnight and was here for middle school and high school. And then I moved up to Virginia for college and had an awesome experience at UVA, which is sort of how I connected with Susie. We didn't know each other then, but we had that same, like, wahoo connection. Mm-hmm. And, and then after college, I moved up to New York City, and that was really where my health journey kind of began when I moved up there thinking I was going to be a lawyer and realized very quickly that that is not, was not the right path for me, personally. Okay. Yeah, so my whole life trajectory had been towards law. I was, I did mock trial in high school and um, I was an English major and I got a job at a big corporate firm in the mergers and acquisitions department thinking that I would apply to law school while I was working there. And, you know, just realized some of it's contextual, of course, every law experience is every experience is going to be different and there's all sorts of ways to practice law but that was the experience I had and I knew very quickly that it was not what I wanted and um you know but you can actually make relatively good money doing that in New York and there's not a lot of options for making money in New York so I didn't know what else to do so I just kept working there and I ended up doing paralegal I had two paralegal jobs over the next four years and hated every second of it yeah so what was the moment when you kind of you know decided to enter the healthier lifestyle living because correct me if I'm wrong because I know that you weren't really being fulfilled in your corporate jobs and so personally what was the first small step that you took towards a healthier um, lifestyle Well, you know, it was really a lot of small steps. So Uh what started to happen is I had a lot of free time at my job, and I started to find myself gravitating towards spending time alone on the weekends instead of I'd been going out and partying and, you know, drinking too much and eating out all the time. Mm -hmm. And I instead started just wandering around New York City, exploring farmers markets. And I really gravitated towards the bookstores. And I started reading about nutrition and some of the early pioneers in the health food world who were making the connection between food and not just your aesthetic physical health, but your mental and emotional health. And it was really over the culmination of a couple months of reading and researching and going to farmer's markets and looking at the food and cooking and um, teaching myself what to do with it that I really fell in love with it because my anxiety started to get so much better. And I noticed after about six months of doing that consistently that the the panic attack stopped and the heart palpitations stopped and I was just so much more calm and clear and happy and I thought well this is just the coolest thing ever right you know feeling so much better just from eating real food right and just out of curiosity how many years into this were you in New York because I know you moved there right after college in 2008 and then when did this happen exactly about three to three and a half years into it okay got it Um, And is there any other advice you'd have for people that are currently struggling with anxiety, um, you know, and sort of what tactics or practices that 
you even do today if you ever have, you know, if you feel anxiety coming on? Yeah, I mean, what I would say first and foremost is I'm obviously, I'm not an expert in it. And yeah. I would say the most important thing is to have you working with a doctor and a therapist and a mm-hmm. professional team. Because anxiety can come from so many different places that it's, you know, it's, there's, what works for me really may not, may, may, may make things worse for you personally. But so, um, but I don't think there's many people who would argue with uh, some basic fundamentals, which is eating mostly whole foods, eating enough healthy fat, drinking a lot of water, getting enough sleep, you know, drinking in moderation, drinking alcohol in moderation, um, having healthy relationships in your life and not neglecting them, um, exposing yourself to sunlight on a daily basis, not so much that you get burned, but enough that you are allowing yourself to be in touch with nature and get some vitamin D. Those are all things that are sort of, sort of like my over overarching self-care routine for preventing acute panic, which I honestly haven't had very, I mean, very much of. But if I do ever feel like I'm bordering on some acute panic, um, I would say breathing exercises are really helpful. One that I like to do is where you breathe in for four counts and then you release on eight counts and then do that back and forth. I really like that. And yoga has been a big part of my life for managing um, times when I'm particularly stressed out. And um, magnesium is a supplement that, again, may or may not work for you, but I personally find that taking magnesium citrate or you can use the um, product Calm, which is a dissolvable powder. You can put that in a smoothie or in water. And taking magnesium helps me feel a little bit more relaxed um, when I feel like I need an extra boost. And then, you know, there are a lot of supplements out there that can help support like adrenal function Mm -hmm. I would say again if that's something you think might be of interest to you you know talk to a local functional doctor or dietitian and see if that's something that they can help you um, narrow down Mm -hmm. no those are all such helpful pieces of advice I love it and then do you meditate at all because I know that a lot of people say that sort of sometimes helps people um, you know reduce anxiety Yeah, so I do meditate. Um, I would say that my meditation is a little more unconventional. Mm -hmm. I do sometimes meditate in a traditional way, but more often than not, my meditation comes from walking. So I do moving meditation, and that just means I'm walking, but I'm not on my phone. I'm not listening to anything. I'm just focused on my breathing and on the motion, and it really allows me – I'm better able to, um, I think, be in the moment when I have – when I when I'm moving versus standing still, mm-hmm. but I do think that meditation is incredibly powerful and can show up in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I love how you just said to, um, it's helpful when you're like in the moment. I actually just listened to a podcast last night with um, Oprah and Gwyneth on like the Goop podcast. I don't know if you've listened to that. Um, and Oprah said that for a lot of people that sort of are having trouble getting into meditation, because I know it can be it can be difficult getting into the groove of it. And she says, you know, practicing being present and in the moment and just focused on your particular task at hand is sort of like meditation, just really, really being in the moment. Um, so, which is hard still <laughs> to say the least, but, um, I agree with you. I think that like the walking and then, you know, leaving your phone at home too is all, you know, helpful practices. And then do you practice gratitude too? I think I read that somewhere. Yep. So, okay. um, every morning, yeah, it's funny you say that because I actually don't think of that as this in association with my anxiety at all, but I'm sure it helps. Um, 
Yeah, so every morning when I first wake up, I do a mental gratitude list. And sometimes I'll say it out loud. Sometimes it will just be in my head. But it's um, it's for things big and small. I mean, usually it starts with just the fact that I woke up. But then I'll say little things, you know, that my cat is next to me and that there's sun coming through the curtains and that my bed is so comfortable and that I have the opportunity to do X, Y, and Z. And I'll list it and it'll be totally dependent on that particular day but I'm really consistent with that and find it to be um, just so nourishing and just so great at getting perspective Mm -hmm. I totally agree I actually um used to do the practice of gratitude at nighttime like afterwards but I've switched it to where I do it um right first thing in the morning and it definitely is a really great way to kickstart the day and kind of get you in the right um right, you know, get off the right foot. And, um, I'll give a quick shout out to my friend, Katie Booba Craven. She just purchased this book called the five minute journal, which, um, is in the mail. And I'm going to try that too. I heard that a lot of people are doing the five minute journal, which is a book that you can purchase. So I can, I'll put that in the show notes too. Okay. So you were in New York city for three or four years, unfulfilled basically in, you know, the corporate, uh, doing the corporate jobs. At what point did you quit your job and apply to the National Gourmet Institute of New York City in Chelsea? So, you know, it, it was about it was about maybe almost four years into my being in New York because I had a new lease that was starting in July, mm-hmm. and I had made the decision that I couldn't I wanted I actually wanted to leave and move back to Nashville I was that unhappy but I knew that I couldn't because my lease was up and I wasn't gonna or I just signed a new lease I wasn't gonna do that to my roommate so I so one day I thought all right if I'm gonna be here for another year how am I gonna make this worth my while and I found myself googling healthy cooking schools and I just thought you know I'm loving learning about this and so passionate maybe something exists that's a hybrid of the two and lo and behold there are two schools in the country one is in San Francisco and one is in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York that offer nationally accredited chefs training programs where you become a chef and you learn traditional knife skills and techniques um, but you also learn about food and healing and I found this place um, it's called the Natural Gourmet Institute I went there and I just I was smitten and so um, I mean within about two weeks I had applied and been accepted and I had quit my corporate job and very serendipitously gotten a job working for a health bar company and I began my 11 month program and it was just it was the best thing ever amazing so Larley when you decided to apply to that school and you got in and and, uh, were going there did you encounter any naysayers anyone think you were kind of crazy for quitting the corporate world Um, and if so how did you not fall victim to them Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of people thought I was nuts. Friends, family, you know, not in a condescending or mean way, but in just not understanding it, not getting it, worried for me, very fear-based. But, you know, I had gotten to a point where I was so deeply unhappy that I knew in my bones that the worst that could happen is I would have a really interesting experience, and then I'd go back to some horrible corporate job. So for me, it was like, it just, I was, I I did, I kind of had a revelation. I was walking on the streets of New York, York, and I was like, I'm 27, I'm single, I have a great education, 
what is the worst that can happen to me? And I think it's so important for people to get that perspective, you know, especially as you get out of your early 20s, you start to think, oh, I'm so old, I can't possibly start over. But you know what? It's just not true. I watched my parents have new um, careers in their 50s. And so the idea that we're stuck ever is just, it's a story that we tell ourselves. It's just not real. Yeah. I love that advice. That's, that's awesome. I love that you took that risk too. Um, you went to the program for a year and then you graduated in 2013. And then at that point, what was the next step when you graduated? So I knew, I knew that I was going to move back to Nashville the whole uh-huh. year. I said, I'll sign, I'll sign the lease for one more year and then I'm, I'll move back. So, um, other than that, I really didn't have a plan. Um, you know, I graduated from culinary school I moved back. I got a little studio apartment here in Nashville and, I mean, really, I I just, I sat down, I bought a domain name, and I started a blog. I started posting recipes on my blog, and I reached out to anyone and anywhere that was related to health or food in the, you know, in the wellness community in Nashville, which there wasn't too much of. Um, I reached out to everybody, and I just said, can I teach a class for free? And I would go to places, and I would teach a class, and, you know, on topics like dairy or hormones or whatever it is, and I would get to know people through that, and man, it was just a slow process. I didn't know what I was doing, and Mm -hmm. anyone who reached out to me, I just said yes, really, no matter what it was that they were asking for, I just said yes, and I figured out a way to do it, and... It was a very slow process of the spaghetti tactic, kind of throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks and just being a yes person. And I think that's one of the most valuable things you can do as an entrepreneur is um, be open to failure, be open to things that you don't necessarily think resonate with you. I mean, I originally thought that I was going to be like a one-on-one counselor type of thing. Like Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to do like health coaching. And so I did that for a while and realized that actually I wasn't really good at it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, you know, I taught in people's private homes. I did private cooking classes. I did large group classes. I did lecture-based classes. I created meal plans for people. I did um, all sorts of stuff. And it just slowly, I was able to gain enough credibility to start making choices about what I wanted. And then at what point did you sort of focus on the recipe making? Well, I was always doing, I was always posting recipes posting. on my Okay, blog. got it. The whole time. That was like the one constant from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, yeah. Financially, how were you making ends meet um, during that time in the beginning years? So the first place that I worked was actually a place called Sunflower Cafe, which is a vegetarian cafe here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I was a server. I just literally, and so actually I worked there doing consulting or I worked there as a server and then I got to know the owner and started consulting for her and just throwing out some suggestions and then she and I became friends. So my first consulting job was actually, um, at the same place where my first job was. So that was how I made money initially. And then I started to make money by doing, um, a little bit of consulting for restaurants and one-on-one consultations. I had private clients that mm-hmm. I uh, that would, would pay me to work with them. I love it. So you started up in the bottom, and you just really slowly worked your way up and chipped your way at it, which oh, I love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know any other way, you know? Yeah, for sure. So with a lot of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed, they say that they become so passionate and enthusiastic about their idea or concept that suddenly doors begin to open. Did you have any major breaks in the first year or so 
that helped you get off the ground? Or maybe, you know, like an aha moment when you knew that you were onto something? I wouldn't say that that happened in the first two years. I mean, I did get some recognition from some local publications, um, but even then I still felt like a hot mess. I think for me, my my big breakthrough came, I had always considered myself and consider myself now a, a writer as much as a chef, mm-hmm. as much as anything else. And I started to realize that the things that over time, I started to realize that what I really cared about was writing and recipe development. And that that's where I felt like I was, my did my best work and so the dream I'd always had a dream on the back burner of writing a book but it it became more of a reality um in terms of my desire to write a cookbook someday and then one day uh this was about three years into my business a girlfriend of mine no yeah maybe about two and a half years in a girlfriend of mine had just published a book with a local publisher and she introduced me to them and um, they fell in love with my blog and they, I will forever be grateful for, to them for giving me the opportunity. They basically, they didn't make me write a proposal. They just said, we really like your work and we want to, we want to create a book with you. And the day that I got my cookbook contract was the day where it really all kind of clarified for me. And I realized what, where I felt like I added the most value and where I felt like my skill set met the demand of my demographic, and mm-hmm. um, that's when I just really started pouring my heart and soul into my blog and into my cookbook. Yeah. So, by the way, I have your cookbook, so the listeners know I love it, and I'll definitely link it um, in the show notes. So, how long did it take you to publish a cookbook? What was that process like? Yeah. So, uh, my process was a little unique. Um, I'm a crazy person, and my um, publishers, they, they said, you can take as little or as long as you want, a little time or as long as you want. And I said, okay, great. I'm going to take about six months to do this. So see you on the flip side. So I wrote a cookbook in six months, which is utterly crazy. I would not recommend it to anyone, but uh, that's what I did. And the whole process takes about a year and a half, took about a year and a half. Okay. And you, because you do go about, I did about six months of creating the book and then there's about six months of editing and then there's about six months to actually get the book produced. So the book I'm writing now, I have a full year to write it. So realistically it's, you know, it's a two year process, but even for, for most traditional publishers, that's still fast. Usually right. it takes about three years. Wow. And so the first cookbook that came out in the spring of 2017, right? Like a year and a half okay. ago? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how have the sales been for that book? Um, they've, they've been great. Okay. They, yeah. Yeah. They've been great. They've exceeded, they've exceeded my own expectations yeah. for sure. Um, it's been, it's been pretty amazing and I'm very, very, very grateful. And, um, I do mostly because, you know, for me, what guides everything that I do is feeling like I have value to add. And my book reminds me that my content is valuable and it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. Yeah. And I honestly, I love it because not only does it provide great recipes, but all the questions that we'll do, you know, at the end of the interview from, you know, my close friends and family that have, that they, you know, have for you, you basically answer them in your book. Cause so I was reading the book um, this past weekend and it's so informative of, of everything from, you know, the fad diets to, you know, the healthy fats. So, so just so listeners know, it's, um, it's very educational too, which is super helpful. Um, yeah. So we've kind of talked about this before too, you know, 
So a lot of listeners might put my guest on pedestals because of all the success they've had. But as we know, you know, everyone's human and experiences, setbacks and our failures. And you just talked about how in the beginning it took you a while to get off the ground. So um, how would you recommend to listeners to deal with failures or just like the little setbacks in life? How do you um, how do you persevere through them? So, <laughs> yeah, um, this is going to sound a little bit like tough love, but I've it's what has worked for me, mm-hmm. which is just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that we we let our stories control our lives, and we all are going to have fears. And I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've accomplished. Everyone has fears, and everyone has setbacks. So to have this idea that there will be some point at which you're then comfortable to go for the thing you wanted to do or at some point where fear and failure won't won't get in the way it's that's just not true it just there that that time will never come mm-hmm. so you just have to do it anyway and it's really if i think a lot of times what we traditionally think is when I feel this, I'll be ready for this, but it actually works the other way. You do the thing and then you get to the point where you've grown and you're ready for it and you can tackle what's next. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. And then this kind of leads into another question I had for you. I sometimes ask people I interview, it's um, Angela Duckworth's book. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. Um, she is from Philadelphia. She's a professor at Penn, so, you know, local connection here. But she, her book's awesome. It's a New York Times bestseller. And she talks about the meaning of grit throughout the book. So one quote is, to be gritty is to keep putting one foot in front of the other. To be gritty is to hold fast to an interesting and purposeful goal. To be gritty is to invest day after week after year in challenging practice. To be gritty is to fall down seven times and rise eight. So I would love to hear, you know, what the word grit means to you. What I would say it means to me is I think so much of us, so many of us now, and it's so easy in this, in today's world with all the filters and the ways that social media or cameras offer us the ability to create some kind of barrier between ourselves and everybody else. And when I think about grit, I think about the willingness to take off the mask that you're wearing, whatever that might be, whether it is whether it is a filter or whether it is a camera or if it's just an emotional mask, Mm -hmm. um, some kind of barrier that you've created between yourself and um, the things that you want. And that's, I mean, that's where it gets scary and that's where it gets really raw. But I think having grit means the willingness to set set aside whatever it is that's going to get in the way and to be very vulnerable and exposed. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I think it's also... Um, not caring, caring what people think. Another question I ask people is about the art of listening because I'm trying to get better at listening myself. And I always bring this up in the interviews because a podcast I listened to a few months ago, a CEO of a company um, kept writing down DNT on his yellow notepad, which meant do not talk. This way he can practice listening to his team members. Um, and after the meeting, one of his employees went up to him and he was like, what, why do you keep spray, like, you know, scribbling DNT? Like, what does that mean? And he was like, I have to constantly remind myself, like, to just sit back and listen. So would love to hear how you practice the art of listening, especially since you have, you know, so many followers, um, that, um, 
that follow you on your, you know, Instagram account and stuff? I mean, it's something that I work on all the time as well. I actually get a lot of inspiration from one of my closest friends. Her name's Lily, uh, Lily Clayton Hanson, and she wrote, she's written two books called Word of Mouth, Nashville Conversations, and she has interviewed all sorts of celebrities and incredible people all over the world, and she's taught me a lot about how to be a good listener, and... I mean, so it, it really, it's just a practice like anything else. Um, you know, I, I really believe that the concept that, that easy is earned is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And some, something becomes easy when you practice it. It doesn't have to intrinsically be easy. So I think what I've learned is that usually there's more to the story if you give people a moment of pause. And so I with whoever it is, whether it's somebody that I'm communicating with through a direct message or someone in my classes, I really try to leave, to hold space for them when they're finished and make sure that there's nothing left over. And most of the time there is. And I've found that usually that's kind of where things become the most powerful and raw is when you hold that space and let them realize that they're safe and then whatever else comes out is is that sort of like at the heart of what it is that is holding them back Mm, I love that that's so insightful and I I feel that actually a lot of the time when I interview my podcast guests in the beginning I kept you know jumping to you know, one question's next, one question's the next. And I, I actually had to really practice slowing down and just letting the person talk um, because you're right. That's when sometimes the message is that much more powerful if you let them, you know, develop their thoughts. And, and one question I have for you too is Instagram. So I know that market's like a little bit saturated now. So do you ever have trouble keeping up with, you know, everybody or do you just sort of focus on your own account? There was a time where I used to go around and I'm, um go to other people's like similar accounts and like a bunch of stuff because I thought that would help me mm-hmm. grow and it does work but it just didn't feel like the right use of time and it didn't feel authentic so now honestly I just focus on my own account I mean I support my friends in the industry who I genuinely am following them and love seeing their content mm-hmm. but otherwise I just all I do is think about what do I feel like is actually going to add value and that's what I share right. and that has seemed to that has seemed to work is consistent high quality valuable content um i love that actually um talking about the podcast i listened to last night with oprah winfrey and gwyneth paltrow um part of the podcast oprah talks about how when she had her show a lot of times new other shows would come on competitive shows and so her whole team would get you know all worked up about it. She always told them, just focus on our show and doing our, you know, very best job that we can and adding value and we'll be fine. And obviously she was fine. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think it's all about sort of focusing on, you know, what you have to do and not, you know, comparing to what other, everyone else is doing. Yeah, Um, absolutely. No, I love that. So, Larley, I think we are ready for some rapid fire questions from some of uh, my family members and friends, if you have time for it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. So, um, so I always see health bloggers that I follow, you know, drinking green juice or smoothies in the morning. So my question is, what are the main differences between drinking juice versus drinking a smoothie? Yeah, this is a great question. So the primary difference is that a juice doesn't have any fiber. 
uh, smoothie is going to have fiber. So your body is going to process a juice much more quickly, which means that even a green juice that just has vegetables in it is going to have more of an impact on your blood sugar okay. than, uh, than a smoothie that is made from whole foods. So one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons I prefer smoothies over green juices. I also just find smoothies to be more satisfying and you can also use them as a source of protein and healthy fat, which you can't get with a juice and then with juices you also just want to be thoughtful about is it pasteurized and how long is it going to last because juices are a lot more fragile so they just don't stay fresh as long and then um when i was reading your book this past weekend i thought it was so interesting how you talked about coconut oil milk and flour and avocados and how they're healthy fats so why are they considered healthy fats so that the listeners can know sure so coconut and avocado well they're different um but coconut is a saturated fat which tends to scare people off and saturated fats have definitely gotten a bad reputation and don't that is not that is not fair to them but the saturated fat in coconut is actually quite different than anything else it has something in it called lauric acid that's the type of fatty acid in coconut and unlike traditional animal-based saturated fats that will essentially deposit themselves you know somewhere in your body instead of being used for energy immediately coconut the fat in coconut actually goes straight to your liver for processing so it's a great source of quick energy um and it's also really antibacterial and antimicrobial and antifungal so it's a, it's a cool fat for a couple of different reasons and then the mono unsaturated fats which is what you find in avocado um, are just fantastic as well because they're really anti-inflammatory and they're a little bit more stable than the kind of polyunsaturated fats that you'll get in vegetable oils and you're also going to get more omega-3s with those healthy fats than you are going to with vegetable fats and most of us have way too many omega-6s and not enough omega-3s and that can really cause a lot of inflammation. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And then one question I've had recently are acai bowls. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I have been getting them on the weekends when I go to the Jersey Shore in Avalon or even in Philadelphia and the lines are sometimes out the door. So are they healthy? I've heard they have tons of sugar, so not really sure, you know, what to think. Yeah. So, I mean, they can be healthy, but a lot of them are not because they do have too much sugar. And a lot of them will add like weird packets of powdered something to add more sugar and so I mean you know everybody processes fruit differently everyone has a different carbohydrate tolerance but most people don't do well with something that has three bananas and a mango and a bunch of apple juice so I would say you really want to look at the ingredients that they're using if they are using a juice base I would ask if they can do an unsweetened nut milk or water instead and then you can also ask if they I'm sure they'll have like avocado on their menu ask them if they can substitute you know avocado for some of the banana and then it can be a great thing I mean acai unto itself is very antioxidant rich but yeah most of the time they're just like big bowls of ice cream okay (laughs) that's what I thought (laughs) okay so now some questions from some friends so my friend Kara Crawford here's her question she goes I'm trying to break my habit of drinking coffee in the afternoon. I usually drink it around 3 or 3.30, and that's after I've already had a cup in the morning. Are there any energy-boosting foods you can recommend to replace the caffeine and help me get through the end of the workday? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I would say she might want to try flavor-wise is uh, something called Dandy Blend, which is a caffeine-free, it's an herbal powder, and it's made from dandelion, beet, and chicory root, and it's really rich and dark and has 
a sort of coffee-like flavor, and you can add some milk to it and a little bit of sweetener, and that can be a really nice substitute to kind of wean you off of that coffee flavor. Or you can try the four sigmatic mushroom teas, like the shaga mushroom and reishi, and those can be great, really calming in the afternoon, but again, they have this kind of creamy, caramelized flavor. So that's one good thing. Uh, the trifecta that I always recommend is fat, fiber, and protein. So most people make the mistake of having an afternoon snack of just a piece of fruit or a bar that is mostly sugar. You want to make sure that whatever you're having, you need to be pairing some fat with it and ideally a little bit of protein. So, you know, half a banana um, or an apple with some almond or peanut butter is a great option or, uh, you know, veggies with hummus or you are going to have a bar. You can even spread a little nut butter on on top of it, or just look for a bar that has, I would say, more than 10 grams of protein. Um, Hard-boiled eggs with some salt and pepper in the Trader Joe's Everything Bagel Seasoning can be amazing. Or if you eat meat, the Epic uh, Pastures Grass-Fed Beef Bars are delicious. They have an uncured apple and bacon bar that's so good. You can have that. Or you can do like a little DIY trail mix, um, especially if you're used to having a boost of caffeine. If you do a handful of roasted almonds with some dark chocolate chips and some, you know, big chunks of coconut, that can be really satisfying as well. Amazing. Um, so the next question is from Kelly O'Neill. She loves cheese so much, but she keeps hearing that it is unhealthy. So she wants to know if she really has to work to cut it out of her diet or maybe if there's, you know, healthier cheeses to choose from, whatever, you know, you can recommend. Dairy and cheese have gotten a bad reputation. I personally think that if you are somebody who eats high-quality dairy in moderation and it does not bother you, there's no reason to cut it out. I mean, I do really well with pasture-raised, full-fat you know, cheddar cheese or feta or goat cheese in, in moderation. By moderation, I mean even just, you know, a little bit every day and I'll put you every day. It doesn't bother me at all. I have all my inflammatory markers checked. I have no inflammation from it. And I think it's the probiotics that are in yogurt and in cheese can be great for your digestion. So I personally don't think you need to cut it out. Now, that said, if you are having noticeable IBS and you're breaking out whenever you eat it, then you should probably try weaning off of it or try a higher quality just having, you know, traditional like factory farmed, mm-hmm. you know, single serving packets and that kind of thing. And if you are going to try something, I would say the two best dairy-free options are Miyoko's Creamery and, uh, well, there's three. So Kite Hill Cream Cheese. Miyoko's Creamery has a bunch of different products, and then Chow, which I think is C-H-A-O, has some really good sliced, melty cheese. Okay, amazing. Um, And this is from my friend Kristen Donahoe-Dafferty. She says, what do you think of all the fad diets such as gluten-free, dairy-free, paleo? Are they worth trying, or is there a more well-rounded approach to all the different fads? That's such a hard question to answer. I mean, worth trying? I mean, there's no way for me to answer that without knowing knowing so much more about each individual person because yeah there are definitely people who thrive on very specific quote diets um i don't think a diet mentality is healthy but there are people for whom you know not eating grains and legumes and a lot of fruit you know who really thrive off of a more paleo diet and there's people who thrive off of a more plant-based diet so you can certainly play around with things and 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 pay 
attention to how your body feels, but I, I definitely am not a believer in a one size fits all. And I don't think that there have, I don't think you have to follow one dogma or another to be healthy. I think it can depend on where you are in your life and all sorts of factors. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. I know I think a lot of people get overwhelmed today with all the different, the different fats. Um, so this sort of leads me into my next question. This is from my sister, Tara Hayden Vacation. And so this year she had to completely change her diet, um, for health reasons. So she became gluten and dairy free. And at first she was super overwhelmed, but now she follows, uh, more people like yourself, Larley, and she's learned so much and she feels great. And now, you know, loves that there's so many great gluten and dairy free food options. So when people must make diet changes, you know, whether it be gluten-free, dairy-free, or some other sort of diet they have to do, how do you help them get through that transition period? Are there things they can do to stay positive and not become overwhelmed? Oh, absolutely. I think a big thing is a mentality shift of lack and deprivation to a shift of abundance, because most people who are weaning off of something don't don't even realize how many other options are out there. So one thing I really try to do is just show people other foods that they may not be eating or ways of putting foods together or spices or condiments that can create excitement and show them delicious flavors so that they are looking forward to the process as opposed to dreading what they're having to give up. So I think that's a big um that's a big part of it. And then, yeah, I mean, and then just, just really introducing people to products that they may not have heard of because at the point, there are so many ways to have everything that you love. There's usually someone who's doing it really well, but gluten-free or dairy-free. So I would say those are the two primary ways that we tackle it. Oh, great. And then here's a question from Robin. Um, she says, as a busy mom of two young toddlers, I struggle to pull together quick and healthy meals that the boys will eat. I would love suggestions on how to get a toddler to eat healthy. Any sneaky ways to include vegetables into their meals? So I will say first and foremost, I'm not an authority. I don't. I don't have. I don't have kids, and I haven't worked directly with children, but okay. I have worked with a lot of parents with picky eaters, and I and and toddlers. And I think one thing is just remembering that sometimes it can take 15 to 20 times of being exposed to a new food before a child will try it. So a lot of it is really giving it to them over and over again, but not in a forceful way, letting them see it, taste it, touch it, smell it. And then, and then that's fine if they don't want it. So just remember it can take way, way longer than you might think. Um, another thing is to, even with a toddler, you can get them interactive in the kitchen. Having them become part of the process makes them much more excited to try foods. So holding a bowl, stirring something, you know, taking the, if you're, if you're going to blend something and your Vitamix, like make a smoothie, take the, take the base, I mean, take the top off. So obviously it's not attached and then they can help throw things into it. And then, you know, you can either hold their hand, help them flip the switch while you're holding their hand or same thing with the stand mixer. So getting them involved is really helpful as well. And then, yeah, I mean, smoothies are a great way to blend vegetables in. And if they don't like the way that uh, they don't like a green color, you can blend in something like peeled zucchini or 
cauliflower, you can blend those in. You're not going to notice it. Or even pureed sweet potato, you can make fun colors that are pink or orange that might be more appealing. Or yellow with some pineapple and banana um, is awesome. And then blending them into, you know, pancakes or waffles or muffins. I have a couple recipes on my blog that have vegetables blended right in there and that can be really powerful as well um yeah and then I think you know just just taking being easy on yourself and knowing that if their favorite foods are peanut butter and jelly and chicken tenders maybe just try to find healthier alternatives to those as opposed to worrying too much that they're not getting enough vegetables Mm -hmm. you know I mean their little, little bodies can take a lot, can extract a lot of nutrients from very small amounts of food. Okay, great. And then a few more, and then um, we'll finish up. So my friend Grace Gaspari, she's a new mom, and she says, do you have a favorite 30-minute go-to meal to feed a small family? Um, gosh, uh, again, I mean, I have a lot. Again, it, I guess it kind of depends on what everybody is looking for. But I would say one is my 15-minute taco meat. Uh, I make a homemade taco seasoning. You can just keep it in the pantry and just take some ground beef, saute that up, boil some noodles, or um, you can make it into a bolognese, or you can actually turn it into tacos, or you can make a taco salad. So I make that meat all the time, do a bunch of different things with it. Um, I would say another thing that has been really popular are my Asian salmon cakes. Kids seem to like them. If you just keep wild canned salmon around, you throw them together with a little bit of sesame oil, some almond flour, and then you pan sear them, and you can have those with with some veggies, some sautéed veggies, and some rice, and that seems to be a hit with the families also. Okay, amazing. And then my friend Courtney Mullen, she sort of has an interesting one. She says, I'm wondering if it's not so much about what we eat but how. For example, are we relaxed? Are we happy? Do we know where the food came from or who prepared it? Are we being aware and mindful? Have we given a little message of gratitude before eating? So maybe you can talk about, like, you know, how you eat your morning meal or your lunch meals. Um, Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So I actually, I actually have a whole section in my first cookbook on the environment and how important that is. So you can definitely check that out because it is absolutely vital. I would rather someone eat a bag of Doritos in good company and relaxed than try to shovel a bowl of kale down their stomach when they're stressed or upset or in a fight with somebody or rushing because you're going to end up... You're going to end up in a lot of physical pain. Your body is not going to absorb the nutrition, and you're not going to have a good association with eating that healthy food. So it's so, so critically important that we take the time to be relaxed and be present and um, and be in a good mood. And also, most of the time, if you're really stressed out or you're upset about something, you're really not hungry. I think a lot of it's because it's, quote, time to eat. It's that time of the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but but we, I think we need to start setting our own internal clocks and paying attention to when it really feels right, right to be eating. And it's also, it's okay to wait. It's okay. This, and I, I say this with a lot of caveats because this is, does not apply to anyone who had disordered eating in the past or, and, or if for whom this is triggering in any way, that is not who this is for. For someone who has a healthy relationship with food, it is important to remember that hunger is not an emergency. It is okay. It is okay to wait just a little bit and finish up whatever it is you're working on or calm down and then have your meal. That was great. Thank you. Two more. So Liz Finnegan McKee says, if you were in a rush um, and you don't have time to make a meal, what is the healthiest um, granola bar you would recommend? Like if you're on the way to the gym or something. 
So my three favorite bars are probably, um, well, I will say there are, if you want something that's really low in sugar, then Primal Primal Kitchen has a very low sugar, almost sugar-free bar, and it is, nutrition-wise, it's fantastic. So that's something that you can look into. I personally do well with a little bit of natural sugar. Um, so my favorite bars are Go Macro Bars and Simple Squares Bars, and I think they have a really nice ratio of fat, fiber, protein, and carbs, and they taste delicious, and um you know, they're pretty, and they're, they're not perfect, but they're, they're pretty natural. So mm-hmm. that's what I usually go for. Okay, great. And then the last one is from Caitlin McKendrick and she says, what is your favorite vegetarian go-to? I make a batch of my peanut sesame sauce, which is on my FAQ page. If you go to my website, I have an FAQ page and the first drop down is basic recipes. Mm-hmm. And so the recipe for the peanut sauce is there. So I always keep that around. And then I one of the things I'd love to do is get kelp noodles or um, whether or maybe a big salad or veggies, some kind of like base and then avocado, hemp seeds and kimchi and whatever else is, I don't know, whatever else is around, but that kind of Asian flavor profile. And I just put my peanut sauce all over it. So I make that a couple times a week and it just always makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, those were all the questions from my friends and family. So thank you for answering all of them. That was that was great. So I think it's fun my to pleasure. kind of include the followers um, in the interview process as well. Um, so I think that's it, though, Laurie. That was awesome. Is there any kind of last words of advice you would give to the listeners? And then, of course, you know, where they can find you, too. I would just say, you know, be go easy on yourself. Um, there's no – the concepts of on or off the wagon or – they're not real and it's it's we're, we're all imperfect just do the best you can take it one day at a time and 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 try to let things go there what's in the past has nothing to do it has nothing to do with the choices that you're going to make today so make choices out of make choices out of love instead of fear and don't let yourself be dictated by your past i love it um well thanks laura lee that was so much fun my pleasure Thank you so much for listening to High Five Success Stories. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in more success stories, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes or my website at www.stephhayden.com. Thanks again and have a great day.